0: If you remember, our last episode ended with a pool party at one of the mansions owned by Ben Ali and the Tribelsi family.
1: Chilling in the next of the pool, smoking the cigarettes, and having like the scotch and the whiskey in the other hand.
2: Ah yes, the chilling lifestyle. They're basically just trying to imitate classic American gangster flicks, with whiskey, cigars, girls, and guns.
0: (laughs) Exactly. But you'll probably also remember that Amin, who was telling us his story, had this terrible realization— once he saw Ahmed Trebelzi with his revolver, he knew that even though he was right there within reach of all this opulence and wealth and power, if he made a wrong move, it could all just evaporate.
1: He can kill you. He can do whatever he wants with, uh, with your body. He can tell your family that you are dead in a car accident. He can tell your family that you killed yourself. Imagine the possibility of killing, lying, and do whatever you want with life, with a personal life.
0: Amin's experience, balancing on a knife's edge between being in and being privy to the spoils of corruption, or being out and on the wrong side of a dictatorship, is a bit of a microcosm for Tunisian society throughout the 90s and early 2000s. Staying in line could mean safety, but being close to that kind of power also had its perils. Ben Ali understood this fear, and he used it to his advantage to tamp down on resistance or opposition. He'd find people who wanted to be close to power, but who also feared it. And he'd install them as the head of unions or civil society organizations. And for those he couldn't appoint himself? Well, he had a decidedly Corleone-esque approach.
1: I want you to rest well, and a month from now, this Hollywood big shot's going to give you what you want. Too late. They start shooting in a week. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse.
0: When the public seemed to bristle at his roster of political appointments or Potemkin union boards, Ben Ali would frame it as a culture war and cast himself as the hero. He'd remind people that he was the only thing standing between the open, secular society Tunisia had become and what he deemed as backwards fundamentalist Islam that he'd spent a decade crushing. Many people bought into that idea, but even those who didn't, often bought into the idea that it was better to swim with the fishes than sleep with them, if we're continuing with the godfather theme here. For almost 20 years, Ben Ali chugged along in this miasma of wealth and power with his cronies on the coast, while things got more and more dire in the interior. Today, we're going to hear about the first crack in the Ben Ali system and meet two young men whose lives intersected in what many would call the prelude to The revolution. From the Agora Podcast Network, this is Revolution One. Today's episode, the GAFSA mining strikes. So, Cyrus, fill me in a bit on the election of 1989.
2: So in 1989, two years after Ben Ali came to power, he ran in his first election. He claimed that it would be free and fair, and he allowed a handful of opposition parties to run.
0: And that was a pretty big deal, right?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, Habib Bourguiba had declared himself president for life and that Tunisia was a one-party state way back in the 70s. So Tunisians hadn't had a chance to even vote for their leader, let alone run against him in decades. So a lot of people ran on different platforms and new parties, or they ran as independents. But when the votes were tallied, it was clear the election had been rigged. Bentley won the presidency with 99% of the vote, and every single seat in Parliament went to his party.
0: (laughs) So so do we know who really won?
2: You know, actually, Bentley probably would have won if the elections were genuinely fair. He was pretty popular, and he enjoyed broad support at the time. And by the time the ballots were cast, no one was running against him. It was a different story for Parliament, though. His party was popular.
0: But just not every single seat in parliament popular.
2: Exactly. Most people accepted the outcome of the election, even if they knew it was a fraud. And they got back in line behind Ben Ali. But there are some people who can test the results. And things didn't end well for them.
1: My father was arrested just after the election in eighty nine. My father was arrested. My uncle was arrested and many others from my family was arrested because they, they say that the regime cheated in, uh, in that election.
2: This is Sahayr Shamakh. He was just a kid at the time, growing up in Mednin, a town in the country's southeast. His family, his father and uncles, had contested the election results, and the regime came for them quite literally in the middle of the night. After the regime took Sahayr's father away, police were stationed near their home, to monitor and harass them. His family had no idea where their father was being held, and they wouldn't find out for almost a decade. I
1: remember my father was arrested in April 8, 1990. The first time we visited him in the jail was in 1997. Since seven years, we don't know where he is. They didn't give us the chance to to meet him. And they didn't say in which prison he is.
2: Zahar was just four when his father was arrested. And when he saw him again, he barely recognized him. Not just because of the time, but because of the torture he'd been subjected to.
1: It's different between jails when you are activist or political opposant to the regime. It's different from other prisoners. Everything was in black. You don't know when you are going to, to, to go home. You don't know what they are going to do for you. It's a lot of torture. It's, uh...
2: Almost no one in the country knew what was really happening in Tunisia's prisons until very recently. So what people knew about, if anything, was based on rumors and whispers. I don't want to get too gruesome here, but independent reports detail the completely inhumane conditions political prisoners suffered throughout the 90s and 2000s. They were starved, they were beaten, they were left in solitary confinement for years on end, often without a bed or any place to sleep. They were forbidden from contacting the outside world or having any visitations. They weren't given medical care, and they were forced into labor in what one report called conditions of near slavery. Many died because of the torture they suffered, others because of malnutrition or because of disease. After 13 years in prison, many of which were in solitary confinement, Zaghair's father was released in 2003. Just three months later, he died.
1: I didn't choose to, to, to be an activist, but I found myself in. So after seeing my father in jail and uh, seeing the police all the all the time in front of our house trying to control us what to do and what not to do so i i was engaged in uh, in politics
2: so even if sagar had wanted to forget what the ben ali regime had done to his father had done to his family they wouldn't let him he was exception to college in tunis and graduated as one of the top students in sociology in the entire country but because of his family ties and his own activism his life after graduation was pretty grim
1: even if i was the second in all the country in all the people who are uh, my degree i was but they refused to accept me in master degree cause i was arrested and because you know um, activism
2: Everywhere he applied for a master's degree, he was turned down. So he tried to get a job instead. He'd start work at a cafe or at a shop, but it wouldn't take long before someone took notice.
1: Every time I find work in a coffee, in a restaurant, in many other activities, I spend a couple of days, and the, the police car arrives, and they ask the, the boss to to say goodbye. So,
2: As soon as the regime found out where he worked, he'd get fired. By this time, Ben Ali had pushed through a constitutional amendment to get rid of the term limits so he could run for president again in 2004. When he came to power, he'd promised he'd serve for three five-year terms only, then step down. But the election in 2004 would be his fourth. Like every other election in the previous 15 years, the outcome was apparent from the start. He allowed other parties to run, but they fought amongst themselves for a few reserved opposition seats in parliament, rather than against Ben Ali or against his party. All the major civil institutions, from the unions to the feminist organizations, endorsed him. But Sahir didn't. And protesting the outcome of the election was a pretty lonely fight. Not long after Ben Ali sailed through to power once more, there was a Congress of Arab leaders being held in Tunis. Soghaer organized a protest.
1: We chose to, to make a dem- demonstration on the street. We was only 19 people, you know. It, uh, but uh, our demonstration was during seven or eight minutes, only because, uh, you know, the number of the cops was uh, maybe 100 times more than us. So...
2: Nineteen young people versus scores of police officers. In ten minutes, the whole thing was over, and Sagar would spend four weeks in jail. And it was there he learned firsthand what his father had experienced. I asked Sagar what it was like in prison. He got quiet. Then he told me that once, after the revolution, he was interviewed by a local reporter who asked him to describe his experiences.
1: So I said that it was like another Abu Ghraib, but...
2: Abu Ghraib. The notorious prison where American soldiers tortured and murdered detainees during the Iraq War. That is how he described his experience. I should add that the first month he was in jail was just a prelude to other, longer sentences he'd serve as a political prisoner over the next five years, in different prisons around the country. But his description of all of them was the same. Everything around you was black. You had no idea how long you'd be there, or what would happen next. It was as psychologically grueling as it was physical.
0: Very few young people were as politically active as Sahar, but... Almost half the country was under the age of 35, and they were having a tough time living with Ali's policies. Education was a major priority in Tunisian society, and many students went on to get college degrees. But when they graduated, they faced an uncertain future. Ali's economic plans always focused on cheap exports to Europe and packaged tourism deals, so what few jobs were available—in manufacturing or low-level hospitality— were precisely the kinds of jobs people went to college to avoid. For some, it was the experience of college itself that was
3: enough to turn them against the regime.
4: I'll
3: never forget the first lecture I had at the university. It was in the biggest auditorium on campus, and the head of the communications department stood up, and he gave this straight-faced speech to a bunch of 19- and 20-year-old aspiring journalists about everything we couldn't write about. And it was everything.
4: This
0: is Henda Shenawi. When her family got the internet at home during her teenage years, she was drawn into this world of blogging and was astounded to read other young women's stories, primarily in France, about their struggles and hopes. She saw all of the things her friends were struggling with and wanted to write about what being a young Tunisian was like. So she worked tirelessly in high school to get into a journalism program for her degree, but reality came crashing down on her the moment she walked in the doors.
4: He
3: spent an hour and a half just listing off things we couldn't investigate, write about, or even discuss. I felt like I was hallucinating. I had dreamed of becoming a journalist since I was seven years old. All I wanted was to grow up and write about what was happening in the world and in my country to investigate the problems affecting the youth, you know. And then the first day at university, the head of the communications department stands up and says, basically, you don't have the right to be a
4: journalist.
3: I spent four years with instructors who taught like that. Everything was in the abstract, and we had no idea what journalism actually was. We couldn't even identify what made a good topic, let alone investigate it. I swear to you, we graduated with degrees in communications, and not one of us knew how to write a real article.
0: So Hannah was lucky enough to get a job in her field after college. But, of course, there was a catch.
3: I started working at a radio station that was owned by Ben Ali's daughter. But your job was to be a patriot, not a reporter. In one of his attempts to put on a good
0: face for American and European observers, Ben Ali had allowed for the creation of private media organizations. But... As I'm sure you could guess, they were all owned by members of the family. The limits of what these organizations could cover were
3: unspoken, but extremely
4: rigid. Il y a rien concrètement qui dit on est censuré, mais.
3: There was never anything concrete that censored us. There was just this arsenal of vague legal terms that kept us from holding people accountable because we couldn't criticize the administration, or else it was defamation, and everyone was linked to the administration.
0: Voilà. The independent media became propaganda machines for the regime. Henda tried to work her way around the system,
3: but it was a delicate dance.
4: J'étais la seule journaliste qui parlait de la pauvreté.:
3: I was the only journalist writing about poverty at the time, but I had to do it with such a light touch. You know, yes, there is poverty, but there is an association or a minister so-and-so that's doing something about it. But even that helped me get the numbers out.
4: Voilà, je donnais des chiffres. More than anything, she
0: just wanted people of her generation to know the truth, and the truth was in the numbers.
4: Les chiffres, les statistiques, c'était euh, c'était une chose à ne pas toucher.
3: Reporting on statistics was something you just didn't do, but I did, and I tried to find other sources for those statistics. Pourcentage
4: de chômage en Tunisie. Ben Ali disait, c'était
3: Of course, the government was lying. Ben Ali would say that the unemployment rate in Tunisia was 0%, when in reality it was closer to 14%. Same with the poverty rate or price-fixing. So I tried to talk about it, but it was nearly impossible.
4: All
0: of this, the anger with Ben Ali, the lack of opportunities, and the lack of media freedom, would come to a head in 2008, in the Gafsa Mining Basin. Unlike many Arab countries, Tunisia doesn't have major oil or natural gas reserves. While its neighbors, Algeria and Libya, pump desert crude for considerable profit, Tunisia is left with a single natural resource to exploit, a reserve of phosphate in the country's southwestern Gafsa province, right on the edge of the Sahara. There's a cluster of small towns that support the government-owned Gafsa Phosphate Company mines, and... That's where we meet Yahya bin Abdullah, who grew up in the mining town of Radayef, right on the border with Algeria. He told us what it was like living there.
5: Making a living or getting ahead in Radayef was hard. You can make ends meet, but there really wouldn't be much left over. And the work conditions were rough. Working in the mines is physically demanding and there aren't a lot of medical or safety standards so people got exposed to some pretty toxic stuff lots of people got cancer or just had other health problems from the exposure to the phosphate
0: we weren't allowed to visit the mines but we did a little digging into how phosphate mining works
2: yeah and like most mining it's not a pretty picture Phosphate mining is a dirty, toxic business in the best of circumstances. It's open pit mining, so there's a lot of big, heavy equipment involved. To separate the phosphorus, which is used in fertilizer, from dozens of other compounds in the rock, they blast it with water, which makes this kind of mineral soup that no one really knows what to do with after they've finished. Actually, Florida has one of the world's largest reserves of phosphate, and every time a company even hints it might want to open a new mine there, there's always major local pushback. That's because the byproducts and wastewater from phosphate mining, they aren't just poisonous, they're radioactive. People who live near or work in phosphate mines are more likely to get cancer or have severe dental or lung problems. In GAFSA, it wasn't uncommon for a single family to lose multiple members who had worked in the mines, whether that was through accident or illness but mining was the only secure work in an otherwise desolate part of the country. The official unemployment tally for the mining basin was 25%, but that was likely a significant undercount. Families relied on those dangerous, dirty mining jobs. Yahio's family were longtime miners and longtime union activists. They agitated for better pay, for better working conditions, but there was one issue that they were especially insistent on. That when jobs opened up at the mines, they were given to family members of men who died there. So, Aaron, if you remember from our first episode, when our professor Atia used his union cred to get Mohammed Bouazizi to the hospital, the unions were kind of an alternate power structure in Tunisia.
0: Right, and there is one union that rules them all, so to speak.
2: Exactly. The General Tunisian Workers' Union, or the UGTT for short. They use the French for the acronym. The UGTT had incredible power and sway with both the government and the people. But like nearly everything in Benelis Tunisia, it was undercut by corruption. The head of the local chapter of the UGTT in the mining basin was a man named Amara Abassi. He was the guy who was supposed to be at the forefront of all this union action. But he wasn't just the union boss he held a major position in Ben Ali's political party. And as it happened, he also owned a business that subcontracted jobs to the mining company.
0: Oh, that sounds promising. So he had three separate competing interests, the union, the regime, and his own business?
2: Exactly. And in 2008, just two years before Mohamed Bouazizi set himself on fire, all three of those competing interests intersected. In January that year, the Gafsa Phosphate Company advertised that they would hire 400 new employees. For most of the Ben Ali years, the mine had only cut jobs. The announcement gave a lot of people in those flagging communities some hope. And thousands of men applied. The government promised that priority would be given to younger workers, especially those from families who had already lost a breadwinner in the mines. But when the jobs were announced... All of them went to Abbasi's friends and relatives or people in his political network. The whole mining basin erupted in protest. Miners went on strike and thousands of other workers joined them in solidarity. There were work stoppages and there were hunger strikes. Workers created roadblocks and sabotaged the railroad so phosphate couldn't be transported out of the basin. But the catch is, none of these actions were supported by the local UGTT. because Abbasi, who was supposed to be leading the union there, was the one on the take.
5: People felt like they couldn't stay silent this time, so they moved. It was a combination of being fed up with the corruption, a desire for freedom, and the culture of the area that led to the situation exploding. Despite all the hardship, people had a real appetite for life, and they wanted to fight. And strive for better.
2: Thousands of people streamed into the streets of several small towns in the mining basin to protest. Ordaev, where Yahya lived, was a town of about 25,000, and nearly 2,000 people were out demonstrating. Yahya's uncles, all active union men, stepped up to organize people despite calls from union bosses to demur. They were soon at the heart of the movement, and their activism drew Yahya in. But it wasn't just the unemployed men or the restless teens who were out in the street. In the nearby town of Umar Aris, a group of widows and mothers of those who died in the mines led a demonstration of hundreds of people to demand the jobs be reassigned.
5: There were huge protests, every day. Enormous gatherings around the labor union headquarters in the city center. Most of the town was out there, every single day. Women and kids, too. Not just the men. People would give speeches over a bullhorn. They'd play Marcel Khalifa songs. Revolutionary songs. It really made for a wonderful ambiance in the city.
2: But there is one person who is decidedly not feeling that ambiance. Fearing that the protests would spread, Ben Ali put the whole region on lockdown. He ordered roadblocks set up on the perimeter of each town creating a blockade. The police were out in droves.
5: In the beginning, it was just normal protests, but the regime showed up with an outsized amount of security. One morning, we woke up and the center of the town was crawling with officers wearing black, the color of the security forces. They were everywhere in astounding numbers, and it really ramped up the tension. That lit the spark of the violence and conflict, and it became this daily back and forth.
2: These were the same security forces Ben Ali had used in his brutal crackdown against the IMF protests in the 70s. When hundreds of these men showed up, armed to the teeth and dressed entirely in black, Standouts began between them and some of the protesters. Yahya, who was still in high school at the time, was one of them.
5: We had this routine every day. We woke up, went and fought the security forces, then went home, ate, and went to sleep. Most of the time, I wasn't afraid because when you get into these demonstrations, you face the regime, experience oppression, and when you felt injustice, the stripping of your dignity and freedom, the fear ceases to exist. It's really motivating to see little victories against the regime. Every demonstration, every argument, every back and forth with the security forces, even if we were just throwing rocks, There was a small victory.
2: For most of February and March, the security forces were tightening their grip on the blockade and scuffling with the protesters daily. Several people had been killed or injured during the confrontations, and the city was hardening against the government. They continued protesting into April. Ben Ali wanted it over. He ordered the security forces to shoot tear gas into neighborhoods where suspected protest leaders lived and began rooting them out.
5: Once in a while, there would be raids on the leaders of the movement, night raids in their homes. They would kidnap and torture the leaders, throw them in jail. They would do terrible things to the women, even the men sometimes. It was some of those acts from the regime that became a turning point that moved things in a different direction. At the height of everything, most of the leaders were in prison, but my uncle was free, and he was hiding at my family's house. But one night, the security forces found out where he was staying and kicked in the door. While he ran, my mother and I we were hiding in a secret alcove under a bunch of blankets and cushions.
6: we said
0: While Ben Ali's security forces continued their campaign of terror in the mining basin through the spring and into June, the rest of Tunisia went about daily life completely unaware. See there was one big difference between the Gafsa mining strikes in 2008 and what would happen in Sidi Bouzid just two years later. The internet.
5: There are Tunisians who don't know the details of the mining basin strikes. Even today, there was a complete media blackout and a blockade that kept everyone and everything, even food sometimes, from getting in and out of the city.
0: In 2008, cell phone coverage didn't extend to the interior of the country, and internet access was limited to a few cyber cafes, which the government shut down early in the strike. Most people in Tunisia didn't have cell phones, or if they did, they certainly weren't smartphones. No one in Tunisia had Facebook, and only a few people were on Twitter. Media in the local dialect was limited to government stations, or those outlets like the one Henda worked for, which were controlled by Ben Ali and his family and allies. On the coast, wealthy people circumvented this with satellites that could pick up Al Jazeera, but in the interior of the country, that just wasn't an option. Activists were recording the security force's brutality in the mining basin on camcorders or small digital cameras— and they were desperate to get all those images out and into the hands of Al Jazeera or other Arabic broadcasters so that the rest of the country could see what was going on. But you couldn't just drive out of town through the police checkpoints and roadblocks with a backseat full of DVDs. Activists had to get creative to get information out. That's where we pick back up with Sarah. Rumors of a crackdown had been circulating among activists in Tunis, but without photographic evidence, the Ben Ali regime would just deny and deflect. At an underground meeting, Sahar and other activists in the capital debated how best to help the few activists on the inside of the mining basin.
1: There was uh, three or four people there, activists there, but there is no uh, connection between them and uh, the political activists here in the capital. And uh, the, the, we need, in that time, we need to make connection with them in order to help them to uh, to to send uh, photos, to send the news, to send videos to uh, outside of the of the country, to TV station.
0: They had to send someone in person to help ferry all of this footage out of the mining basin, someone who was unknown to the police in the area and who could maintain a low profile. It was essentially a spy posting. They chose Sahar. He left the next day for Gafsa, the closest city on the outside of the blockade, and immediately connected with one of the local activists. They told him that they'd send someone to meet him for a handoff in the mountains outside of town. That someone was Yahya.
5: There are secret roads leading out of the city to the desert and mountains that we'd use to get out. You couldn't use the main roads because of the kawada, we call them, pimps. The informants who ratted people out to the security forces.
1: Every night he, he comes and we meet each other out of the city. He gives me CDs and USB in which there
5: are a lot, uh, lot of photos, videos.
6: I would
5: get information from here and there usually on a CD, and I would sneak out of the city with it. Someone would meet me outside of the town and I'd hand off the material. Then they'd take the back roads through the mountains or deserts to get out of the area. Once they were out of the mining basin, then they were in the clear. Then I come back and I send
1: it, you know, using Hotspot Shield and Sound Proxy and many, many, many programs. And I sent them to uh, to many other friends here in the capital in order to m- make them arrive to some newspaper, some uh, TV uh, TV program. But I think I was lucky because the, the regime didn't track at me when i was uh, I was
6: there.
5: It wasn't a job for just anyone. The path out of town, the contact you met all had to be kept secret. It was such a sensitive mission because if we lost that connection, we would be completely isolated.
0: Yahya and Serir were part of this delicate network of ghosts who slipped in and out of Rodayev and the other towns in the mining basin, desperately trying to get information out. They only met a few times. Contacts rotated regularly, so if someone was being followed, it wouldn't compromise the mission. They didn't even actually learn one another's names until after the revolution. But despite their valiant efforts, most of the world, and even most of Tunisia, remained oblivious to what was happening in the mining basin. Little information actually made it to the coast, and because of the low quality of the photos and videos, big foreign news outlets didn't want to publish them. A few European news agencies published small articles, but most of the information just circulated underground among activists. When the protests hit the six-month mark, Ben Ali decided he wanted this standoff finished, once and for all.
6: The
5: regime finally broke the boycott with their last crackdown mission. They did it by drumming up a conspiracy The police station was torched in the middle of the night and the regime blamed it on the leaders of the movement. So the next day, the situation with the security forces was more tense than usual. And then suddenly they shot live ammunition into the city. The whole place was surrounded by security forces and they They fired. The first two or three shots went into the city center and everyone scattered. Everyone was running in different directions. The sound of the bullets is very distinct for me. I wanted to go. I wanted to get right into the heart of that battle, but my mother was screaming at me not to leave the house. You know moms. I kept watching it all through my binoculars. I saw one of my friends get shot by a sniper.
6: It's
0: impossible to confirm how many people were killed or injured that day. Some reports say it was one death and 20 injuries. Others say it was as many as five people who died, And 50 people were injured. But either way, the security forces had shot live ammunition into a crowd of peaceful protesters. The city was reeling.
6: The
5: city was in shock. I think even the regime was scared of the reaction. So they sent the army in.
0: After the army arrived, the police began to round up the demonstrators. They arrested and imprisoned 200 strikers, with another 50 fleeing into exile from absentia convictions, including some of Yahya's family. Both Sakhar and Yahya managed to escape arrest, but only narrowly. Despite a tenuous resolution in GAFSA, the underlying problems that ignited the protests were only accelerating. As the European economy that Ben Ali had tied the country's hopes to crashed in the Great Recession later that year so did Tunisia's economy. The poverty and unemployment numbers that Henda had tried so delicately to track skyrocketed, creating thousands more disillusioned youth, and not just in the interior. Small protests persisted in towns across the country, and two new online platforms, Facebook and Twitter, grew in popularity as connection to the internet improved. The conditions were growing increasingly ripe for a revolution.
2: Revolution One is produced by me, Cyrus Rodell, and Aaron Brown. Tim O'Keefe is our composer and engineer. A special thanks this episode to Lila Raptopoulos, who voiced Henda, and Nathan Reiser, who voiced Yahya. Farhat al-Hatab helped us with translations. We recorded this episode at La Fabrique in downtown Tunis. Join us next week for episode four, when we meet the student activists spreading the revolution after Mohamed Bouazizi's death, and see just what lengths Ben Ali would go to to keep his grasp on power. And also, if you liked this episode, share it with someone else you think would enjoy the podcast, or leave us a review. Listener recommendations are the best way for us to get new listeners. Thanks, and see you next time.